Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us. I hope you've been listening to and enjoying um, our Maverick Mind series that we've been playing all September with um, our guest, Dr. Sharice Warren. She's our guest and our host, and she's in season two. Um, she's talking about these very highly visual thinkers, um, and you know they're often misdiagnosed, misunderstood. And she talks about you know reengineering the brain. You know she's lived through it with her son. So please, they're in archive. You can listen anytime. And before we go on to tonight's interview, I want to um, just mention our sponsors for tonight's show. If you have a child that's newly diagnosed with autism, there's an online training course. It's Discovering Behavioral Intervention. And it really is an answer for parents that um, are new to this and really don't know where to turn. It is real parents that take you through applied behavioral analysis in 10 step-by-step modules. You can learn more by going to udiscovering.org. They're part of UMass, and it's really a a terrific program. I'd also like to thank um, TextHelp. TextHelp is proud to announce the availability of Read and Write for Google. Uh, Read and Write is now available for Google. It integrates with Chrome, PCs, Macs, and um, Google Documents, and it is for struggling readers and writers. It's a wonderful program, and you can find them at www.texthelp.com. I have a fantastic interview. Um, you know, as as you all know, I am an addict with Science Daily, and I had found this um, study that was done. And, you know, it's just so important because so many of the parents, um, you know, are so confused about sensory processing disorder, what it is, what it isn't, is it a standalone disorder, is it just a tag-along? And here we have um, really a breakthrough study that reveals a biological basis for sensory processing disorders in children. And sensory processing disorders are more prevalent in children than autism and as common as ADHD. Yet it receives far less attention, partly because it's never been recognized as a distinct disease. Um, As you know, it's not listed in the DSM-5. And this groundbreaking study was done at um, University um, of California, San Francisco. And they found that children affected by sensory processing disorder have quantifiable differences in brain structure. And for the first time, they show a biological basis for the disease that sets it apart from other neurodevelopmental disorders. Tonight, I have the two leads um, for this study. We have Dr. Pratik, oh, I knew I was going to say that wrong, Mukherjee, um, and he is a professor of radiology and biomedical imaging and bioengineering at the University of California, San Francisco. And we also have a Dr. Elisa Marco, um, who led the study along with postdoctoral fellow Julia Owen. And um, Dr. Marco is a cognitive behavioral child neurologist, also at the University of California, um, San Francisco. Um, Bainox Children's Hospital, which is ranked one of the nation's best um, hospitals for um, centers for neurology. So welcome. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you You're for very having welcome. us. You know, Dr. Marco, I wanted to start with you. Um, you know, I've, I've had um, really been so fortunate that I've had um, Carol Kranowitz and um, Dr. Lucy Miller on several times um, explaining what sensory processing disorder is. But for those who, who didn't listen to those interviews, you, could you please just tell us, you know, a lot of parents don't understand, a lot of the listeners really don't understand it being a standalone diagnosis because very few 
disorders that we discuss on this show don't have sensory issues, but having sensory issues and having sensory processing disorder um, are different. So can you explain it to us? I think the confusion is well-grounded, and I think part of the confusion is based on the fact that we try and apply um, specific clinical labels uh, to children who don't necessarily always read the clinical uh, the clinical labeling rule book. And there is a lot of overlap. And I think um, I think that it's fair enough to be um, recognizing that similar brain processes are going to be at work in better and worse efficiency across children with different kinds of genetic variations and environmental presses. I think the first thing to remember is that basically we're all sensory processors. We're constantly taking in information from the environment around us, via sound, touch, visual information, the sense of our body and space, we take that information into sort of the primary areas of our brain. We bring those areas together through connections between different brain regions, and we make sense of that information by applying our memories and our experience, and then we plan motor action or our verbal um, response, and that's basically what we're doing all the time. We're all constantly sensory processing, and clearly some kids will have difficulty with any stage of that processing or in any domain, meaning that some kids can have more problems with an auditory processing problem, others more tactile, and while we often will see overlapping problems in a single child or adult even, you can have it in an individual basis based on a single lesion or injury to the brain. As you mentioned, kids with autism classically have challenges with sensory processing, oftentimes auditory processing, but um, clearly in the tactile domain as well, and bringing that information together. But then we have children, and I see them all the time in my clinic, who have processing, sensory processing differences as manifest by behavioral differences. So they seem to be hypersensitive or hyposensitive to sound or touch um, or even sensory craving for one of those domains. But they just clearly don't need a clinical diagnosis for autism. And so what do we call those kids? What do we do to help those kids? And the answer is we call them generally isolated sensory processing disorder because it's not associated with autism. And what we do with those kids is we try and figure out what the challenge is and how to remediate it. But the problem is that because it doesn't fall under a label that's generally accepted, um, it's really hard to get services provided for these children. We do often see it associated with other challenges, challenges in fine motor control, emotional regulation, and attentional control in children with isolated sensory processing disorder, but it's specifically, especially in this um, research, differentiated from kids who have a diagnosis by autism by doing formal autism um, evaluations in all of the children who are involved in this study. I hope that, does that clarify the question? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I was really surprised when I was reading um, in this paper that um, sensory processing disorders affect 5 to 16% of school-age children. I mean, that's a large population. Um, but one thing I wanted to go back to was the plural. Um, so when in the study it says that it's sensory processing disorders. It's not sensory processing disorder. So is it a spectrum, and what makes it a spectrum? 
So the answer is we're just at the beginning of understanding sensory processing um, in, a, a clini- in a clinical neurodevelopmental context. There aren't many studies that have been done to understand what the underlying etiology is. Mm-hmm. So what are the neural networks? What are the genetics? What are the environmental pressors that may be affecting mm-hmm. these children? And in a study done by one of the sensory processing disorders consortium members, um, Hill Goldsmith, he shows in a population study of twins that something like 30% of the auditory hypersensitivity seems to have a genetic component, and it's even higher than that for the tactile sensitivity, upward of 50%. But then without knowing what the genetic variability is that's leading to these problems, um, it's hard to know whether it's attributable to a small subset of genetic changes or whether they're like in autism uh, are many, many probably small changes that are contributing to the overall clinical picture. And so that's where the S comes from, is in part just a lack of knowing what is the what is the underlying region for the difference in the connectivity that Dr. Mukherjee and I are finding in this study. Um, is it singular or is it plural? And to date, it's really not been well investigated. So there's a lot of work to be done. Do you find um, similar social and communication issues with sensory processing um, that you do in autism? You know, is that really something that that would define it um, separately? So my answer is this. Classically, autism is a disorder of social processing. In the little kids, it starts with impairment and social awareness. It builds upon that to social interest, social drive, and then later social success. Kids with isolated sensory processing disorders, by definition, that because they're isolated, don't share the deficit in social awareness, interest, and drive. They've got a lot of social awareness, a lot of social interest, and they would very much like to be connecting with other kids, their peers. They similarly, though, have a lot of difficulty with social success because their ability to read social cues um, and to make an appropriate social response tends to be impaired. And so I see them as having challenges at the top of that social pyramid, that social success piece, but differentiated in really what the core features of the social deficit are, and those are those basic levels of awareness then interest, and then drive. Well, you know, before, before um, you know, you found uh, this information, um, you know, a lot of these kids are falling through the cracks. They're um, often misdiagnosed. Um, so say there's a child that has sensory processing disorder, whether she, you know, there's an overstimulation, understimulation, under-responder, over-responder. Um, what effect would treatment that would be more targeted for somebody, say, with ADHD or autism or um, some type of a developmental delay, um, what type of effect would that have if it's used on somebody, on a child with sensory processing disorder? Well, I guess it depends on what type of treatment, right? There's lots of different treatments for kids Mm -hmm. with autism and ADHD. But if you are applying a ADA approach, right, kids with sensory processing disorder don't need to learn the um, dyadic interchange of information. They already know that. They already are well-equipped to want to learn 
from parents, peers, and others. And so, and their language tends to be at the level of their peers. And so the classic autism interventions are not going to be tremendously useful. However, if it's a kid with autism who has a specific problem with sensory over-responsivity and they're getting occupational therapy with the sensory integration focus for that purpose, that intervention could clearly cross over well um, for the kids with sensory processing disorder. That being said, the caveat in that is we still don't know um, what the best sensory-based intervention is for each individual kid. And my hypothesis is that it depends on where the break in the sensory processing chain is. And so you don't want to get auditory training to a kid who has tactile hyper um, responsivity. It's not where you want to be impacting. So you want to characterize it and you want to dial it in for for the specific kid. Is it more of a primary problem with um, sensory perception, or is it more an integration problem, or is it a motor action problem? And we can begin to characterize this in the lab and then take it into the clinic, and we're going to do a much better job of defining treatments that are going to be efficient and worthwhile. Yeah, you know, and I think that, um, you know, one of the concerns for parents is, um, you know, the diagnosis, because it's not in the DSM. Um, so there really isn't the criteria for it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it, it would add confusion for the practitioner and for um, the parent. Um, but, you know, what you're talking about a, a really significant find. Um, and I'd like to bring in Dr. Magrucci, um to discuss this study. Um, uh, Dr. Magrucci, in this study you used um, an MRI, um, a specific, very specific MRI, um, to and, and you found some differences in white matter. So for parents that are, don't know what white matter is, can you just give us a you know, very quick um, understanding of that? And then you'll just tell us the method of this study and um, you know, what you found. Sure. Um, put it very simply, uh, white matter is sort of like the wiring of the brain. So if you consider the brain analogous to a computer, um, the computer has different um, microprocessors or processing units. Uh, if in brain, you know, those are neurons, nerve cells. There are billions of them, hundreds of billions in the human brain. And they're connected by fibers to each other. So that's how they transmit impulses to each other to communicate information. And um, when they need to travel long distances, like many millimeters or even centimeters, uh, through the brain to communicate with each other, uh, they form what's called white matter. Uh, these are bundles of those fibers between neurons, and uh, they're coated with an insulation called myelin, which is white in color. So if you're uh, doing an autopsy on a brain, you know it'll look white to you, hence the name, uh, as opposed to the gray matter where the neurons live. And white matter in the human brain uh, takes up about half the volume of the brain. So the human brain is about half white matter and half gray matter. And in fact, there's way more white matter in the human brain than in the brain of uh, lower uh, organisms because as brains get bigger, the proportion of white matter increases uh, compared to gray matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since uh, neurons, as you get more neurons, they need even more connections between them. So the, um, the reason I felt that white matter may be important uh, in sensory processing disorder and in neurodevelopmental disorders in general is that 
So the brain, you know, has to operate on a very fast time scale. <clears throat> People talk about something being very fast as being at the speed of thought, and thoughts are extremely fast. So the neurons basically communicate with each other on millisecond time scales. So impulses have to be between neurons have to be precisely timed to within uh, thousandths of a second. And uh, so in order for the brain to uh, receive and integrate sensory information from the eyes, the ears, the other sense organs, uh, like the skin, which is the largest organ actually in the body, um, that requires a very precise timing and communication between brain regions, uh, millisecond uh, precision of timing. And so in order for that to happen, the white matter has to be very intact and functioning normally. Uh, and if there are uh, problems with the white matter, if their structure and function is degraded somewhat, uh, then that precise timing no longer becomes possible, and you may run into um, difficulties that may manifest themselves uh, behaviorally. So that was the hypothesis we were working with. And in particular, we were uh, hypothesizing that the particular white matter tracts that convey sensory information in the brain, which tend to be more in the back of the brain, uh, right. so what we call the parietal lobes, the occipital lobes, um, <clears throat> would be the ones that would be most affected in these kids. And we have a new uh, type of um MRI, what we call a sequence, so, you know, one of the types of images that we can collect with MRI scanners, that's called uh, diffusion tensor imaging, DTI. Basically what it does is it uh, measures the microscopic movement of water molecules. And uh, from that you can infer properties of the underlying microscopic structure of the tissues, like in the brain, in the white matter. So we have indices from that that tell us um, what the microstructural integrity is of the white matter. And we can measure that in the living human brain using these new MRI techniques. So we applied that. That, by the way, has been applied to other neurodevelopmental disorders, like there's been work going on for the past decade in autism right. and autism spectrum mm -hmm. disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, and they found white matter abnormalities in autistic kids. So that's uh, probably evidence one for the hypothesis since Autistic kids often have sensory processing issues as well. In fact, right. as Elisa well, shown, also, you know, it also affects perceiving, right? Right. So yeah. So, so you know, the fact that those white matter abnormalities exist in autism too, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, was uh, some uh, circumstantial evidence. So to more directly address it, we, you know, uh, collaborating with Elisa, we looked at a uh, population of kids with sensory processing disorder who don't have autism, don't meet criteria Well, that's for what I was going to ask you. What was the criteria for the study, um, and what was the method that you used for the study? I'll let Elisa address the inclusion and exclusion uh, criteria for the kids. Elisa, you want to address Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So kids, kids, kids came into the study. They were all boys. We wanted to limit it to a single gender to make sure that the effects that we were finding, because it's a relatively small sample size, were mm -hmm. not... Um, uh, showing just a gender effect. So it's all boys, and they're between the age of 8 and 12 years old, um, somewhat influenced by the fact that these kids have to lay still in a scanner. So um, while we'd love to see younger kids, um, for first pass, 
certainly getting kids who are as young as possible but still able to lay still was the um, the methodology that a lot of groups will apply, and we did too. They um, are all screened for autism symptoms. We do that um, with a standard screener called the Social Communication Questionnaire, or the SCQ. If they score above a threshold, then they will be formally screened for autism using the gold standard research tools called the ADIR and the ADOS. If they meet criteria for autism on the ADIR and ATOS, obviously they'd be in an autism group, which was not included in this study. In order to be able to meet uh, clinical concern for sensory processing disorders, they both have a clinical diagnosis of sensory processing disorders, either by an occupational therapist, a behavioral pediatrician, or a child neurologist, as well as meeting a, um, a threshold criteria on what's considered to be the gold standard sensory processing scale right now called the sensory profile. And so that's what we used um, basically for inclusion criteria. Okay, and um, the findings, um, you, you found basically that um, there were abnormal white matter tracks um, in the sensory processing uh, disorder uh, boys. So um, where were these findings in the brain, and what did that tell you? So we looked at all the white matter in the brain uh, to assess whether these kids, uh, the microstructural integrity of the white matter was different than um, a control group of uh, um, other boys the same age uh, matched for uh, IQ, handedness, um, so other characteristics, general characteristics. And uh, what, we, what we found is that the areas that were showing the strongest differences that were statistically significant were exactly these uh, areas that we suspected uh, might be abnormal, these white matter tracts that convey <clears throat> sensory information from more peripheral regions uh, of the brain to the central regions. Uh, these are white matter tracts called the optic radiations for visual information, auditory radiations for auditory information, and also other tracts that communicate from lower order processing areas in the brain for sensory information to higher order areas that integrate information from multiple sensory modalities, uh, like uh, integrating audio, um, auditory and visual information. Right. And those white matter tracts tend to... Uh, preferentially be located in, like I said, the back of the brain, the posterior uh, half of the brain. And Which isn't the other usually the part of the brain that they um, are finding things for autism, right? Yeah, so um, I'll just finish one point, which is that mm -hmm. um, we could also correlate the degree of abnormality that we were seeing in the white matter with the, the sensory profile scores that Elisa just mentioned. And we found you know, um, a very tight correlation between how much uh, white matter abnormality there was based on the diffusion MRI metrics and the degree of uh, sensory processing function. And it did appear to be a spectrum in that um, <clears throat> there didn't seem to be two completely different groups, but there was a continuum uh, among the subjects. So even among control subjects, you have differences in sensory function and sensory behavior based on the sensory profile, meaning uh, kids who don't have the label of sensory processing disorder. And uh, their white matter 
um, <clears throat> microstructure also seem to reflect that. Um, and that has been found in other studies for other types of uh, cognitive and behavioral characteristics too. Like uh, memory, people have different uh, memory abilities and that also seems to be reflected in white matter microstructure, uh, attentional focus, and so forth. So these all seem to be related to um, white matter, in particular neuro neural circuits. And so, I'm sorry, you had a, a follow-up question? Um, no, I was just saying that I know that it's different portions of the brain that are often, um, they're finding things on um, MRIs um, for children with autism. Um, so what does what is this telling you if you're going to proceed now and you know obviously um you know this is a, a, a huge finding uh where would this lead you and where does this um where how is this going to affect diagnosis and treatment so our, our ultimate hope is that um the technique will uh develop into a uh useful diagnostic tool and it's not there yet because uh, what we're seeing currently is significant at the group level. It can distinguish a group of SPD kids from a group of um, uh, control subjects. But <clears throat> if you want to do individual diagnosis, you have to take the variability in the two groups into account too. And we have to do larger studies, preferably studies you know, at many different centers, uh, to see if the technique can be standardized uh, adequately across the centers and uh, have a uh, what we call a good sensitivity and specificity or accuracy for uh, the diagnosis, meaning that it's sensitive you know, to the disease process in that it can accurately find those kids that have the disease, and it's specific in that it doesn't mistake it for some other uh, abnormality. And uh, that's going to take a lot of a lot of work uh, in the future, but this is a promising start. One addition that I would make is that in the short term, right, we have obviously some big um, global goals of being able to bring this technique um, into the clinical setting on the with it applying to a single child who comes into my clinic or anybody else's clinic with a concern. But in the immediate time, we have this work. Um, uh, that we've done that in large part is the effort of a really quite talented postdoc named Julia Owen, and she and other uh, talented folks in Dr. Mukherjee's lab are working on this data set to look at how it compares with similar kids uh, in terms of age, gender, demographics who have a diagnosis of autism, and also to parse out in a more finely detailed way the individual tracks that seem to be affected. And so this work is very much going forward through the efforts of Dr. Mukherjee's lab um, with Julia leading a lot of the processing efforts. So it, there's a lot more to come out of this data set that we'll be hopefully uh, reporting on in the next year. That's well, exactly right. And, you know, where would neuroplasticity um come in with all of this, um, you know, because the, the, the brain's almost always maturing. Um, is, is there a way to re-engineer, to retrain the brain um, for children that might, may have these findings that, you're, um, that you found in your study? That's a great question. Actually, one of the efforts of my lab is to do just that, and um, we have some ongoing projects 
looking at brain training using some really fun and innovative video game type applications, both with our kids with sensory processing disorders, Mm -hmm. our kids with attention primary disorders, as well as kids with autism. And so that is the name of the game, right, is can we impact these kids in a way, hopefully, that is fun, that is generalizable, meaning that they don't just get better on the video game, but they get better in terms of their visual motor abilities get better in terms of their attentional control, self-regulation, and that can be, in the long run, applied widely at home. Absolutely. Via, I was, via the um, Internet. I interviewed, um, I interviewed the doctor that created the integrated listening systems, I mean, he, mm-hmm. years ago, um, mm-hmm. where he used movement and music, so it was sound and vision and um, you know, and he he really found amazing results. Um, so you know, the combination of um, everything that you're finding is just going to be huge for these kids because you know I, th- I think there are a lot of kids that are out there just misdiagnosed and misunderstood. And one interesting uh, addition is that these uh, more advanced MRI techniques like uh, diffusion diffusion tensor imaging, also uh, various functional MRI techniques. Uh, seem to be sensitive to neuroplasticity. So there's actually evidence from multiple labs around the world now that when people learn a new skill, uh, their white matter changes, and the changes can be measured uh, using DTI. Um, So like, for example, someone learning juggling, uh, there are certain structural changes in the brain and microstructural changes in the white matter. Also, different parts of cortex uh, tend to get thicker as well. Um, so the plasticity may be, you know, objective and measurable, and that's something certainly that could be uh, used to confirm treatment and uh, guide different therapeutic approaches. So it's something that's cool. uh, we're we're excited about exploring. Well, you know, I hope that um, you know the more you learn, you come back and you um, share with the listeners. I have a friend who's doing incredible research on gray matter um, in a certain subgroup of uh, kids with autism and. And, you know, these findings are just going to change everything. It's going to change diagnosis. It's going to change treatment. It's going to give hope. So I thank you both for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yep, thank you for having us. Oh, you're welcome. And like I said, your next study, your next findings, please let us know. We'd appreciate it. Will do. Okay. Um, As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent right here on The Coffee Clatch. Um, You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. If they would like to follow your research, is there a website or um, something through the university that they could um, go to? For the um, Autism and Neurodevelopment Program at UCSF, the URL is autism.ucsf.edu, and um, we put a lot of our work up on the site, and um, and also it's a good way to get in touch with us. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll be back on Tuesday with um, Dr. Richard Selznick, School Struggles, and he will be discussing dyslexia and learning disabilities. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us.